in all my years of being a pastor, uh, I have heard a lot of prayer requests. Okay, that's just a, a normal part of ministry for me is you hear people's prayer requests, sometimes shared in a corporate setting, sometimes sent to me privately. Uh, and in the context of people sharing their prayer needs or sharing prayer requests and what they would like prayed for, you hear just about everything. You hear things from heartbreaking uh, to the mundane to the bizarre. I mean, you hear everything in the context of a prayer request. You hear a little bit of everything. But in those years of hearing people give prayer requests, I don't remember anyone ever asking for prayer for God's name to be kept holy. Can't remember a single time of someone bringing that up in the context of a prayer request. It seems like kind of a different request, doesn't it? Uh, and yet when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, the first principle that he put in front of them was the need for God's name to be kept holy. That's the first thing right out of the gate that Jesus presents to his disciples. Last week, we talked about the phrase, kind of the intro to the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. Well, this week, we're going to address the words, hallowed be thy name. Or uh, as the New Living Translation says in Matthew 6, uh, verse 9, may your name be kept holy. May your name be kept holy. This is the first of the requests that Jesus makes in his model prayer that he's given us. And yes, it is a request. When I was growing up uh, praying the traditional hallowed be thy name, I always thought the statement was more declarative. You know, that it was a statement as in your name is holy God, almost a a, a statement of worship or praise to him at the beginning of this prayer. But when you look at the original language and the language that Jesus used as he prayed this prayer, it definitely carries the weight of a request. Let your name be hallowed. May your name be kept holy. And so this is a request that is being made at the beginning of the Lord's prayer. And really, how many of us even know what we're praying when we pray this? I'm guessing not a very high percentage. And since we don't know what it means, we're not really sure what we're praying for. And since we don't know what we're praying for, we tend to kind of skip right over this or just move quickly past this so we can get down to the part we do understand, like give us this day our daily bread. Now, daily bread, that's something that makes sense to us. That's something we can wrap our heads and our stomachs around. We get this. More on that part in a few weeks. But it's important to realize that Jesus didn't begin the Lord's Prayer with the part we understand, like bread or forgiveness. He starts with the part we don't understand, that the part that we wouldn't naturally connect and resonate with. And there's a crucial point here. Prayer doesn't begin with our concerns. Prayer begins with God's concerns. Or to put it really in its most simple format here, Prayer doesn't begin with us. Prayer begins with God. Prayer doesn't begin with us. Prayer begins with God. And we need to keep our focus in that way. Really, every request we make should lead to God being glorified. Everything we want, all we ask for should lead to that end. Every other request in this passage, which we'll be talking about more as we go along here, leads to God being glorified. So stop and think about it. Is that the first thing that you want? 
that God would be honored and God would be glorified. Is that your heart's leaning and is that your leading when you go into prayer? Jesus is teaching us that prayer should be God-centered, not us-centered. This prayer begins by thinking about what God wants before we even say what we want. You know, over 500 years ago, uh, Copernicus, the astronomer, first suggested and published his paper that the sun was the center of our solar system and not the earth. And that was a revolutionary thought in his day that really was got him persecuted. And we need to have that kind of revolution in our own prayer life to actually put God at the center of our prayer lives instead of ourselves, to love God more than ourselves. And we are so far from that in the American church. You know, if we really think about it, we are close to that. Uh, that's why the book on the prayer of Jabez sells way better than if there was a book on the prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer. People love the idea that prayer should begin with, bless me. We love the idea that prayer is all about expanding my territory and staying free from pain. And obviously that prayer is in scripture. It's a legitimate prayer and it's, it's, it's something that we can consider. But I hate to break it to you, but Jesus didn't get an earthly kingdom and he didn't avoid pain. Uh, he taught us to pray first of all about God's reputation, about God's reign, and about God's will. And that's where we need to start when it comes to prayer. Jesus is, he's teaching us a way of praying that is very, very Jewish here. Uh, he's adapting an early form of the basic prayer of synagogue life, the one that they would use to start the service called the Kaddish. And it starts off, translated, uh, exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. That's how they would begin uh, their services in the synagogues. And Jesus changes the prayer from talking about God in the third person, as if he were far away, and changes it to a direct address to the personal God who is both Father and Holy One. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And for Jesus' hearers back in his time when he shared this, it would have been the first part of that sentence that was surprising that they would dare to call God their father. That would, that would freak them out. We talked about that last week. For us today, it's the second part of that which is surprising to us. You know, Christians usually take it for granted that we can be intimate with God. Uh, and we have the perspective that we can come to him and we just kind of place orders like the McDonald's drive through Although I think sometimes we spend more time in the McDonald's drive-thru than we do in prayer with God. And what we don't understand today is that God's name is holy. That's the part that kind of freaks us out a little bit. And that we cannot truly pray until we recognize how different from us God is. And how we should live in such a way that God's holiness is seen through us and through the way we live. That is part of prayer. Really, we live out prayer in the way we live our lives. The prayer teaches us uh, is a prayer for God's glory and not for our own. So we need to ask ourselves, is that what we want? Is that how we're praying? Do we want God to be glorified no matter what 
it costs us. Because it's not natural for us. We tend to be selfish in nature. And that's why we have to be intentional about focusing on who God is and in developing a passion for his glory instead of our own. And the main way we do that is through the activity of worship and praise. That is a, a tool that God has established to correct our self-centered behavior. In a sense, the Lord's Prayer begins with praise. God, you are our Father. You are ruling in heaven. You are the Holy One. Your name is above all names. When we come to worship, we sing songs which help us to focus on who God is. We praise God not to butter him up and prepare him, you know, to hear our prayers, um, but because we need to center ourselves on who God really is. Approaching God starts off not with any sense that God owes us something, but with a sense that God is wonderful and worthy of our worship and adoration. God is so different from us and so perfect, and it's hard for us to relate to that. So that brings us to the line itself from the prayer, may your name be kept holy. Now, names mean something. Uh, they communicate history and tradition and family heritage. Uh, and in the Bible, a name normally stands for the character and the basic attributes of a person. It's not just something that gets thrown onto a tag so that we can avoid saying, hey, you. Uh, Adam means man. Eve means life giver. Abraham means father of multitudes. Jacob means cheater or deceiver. In the New Testament, Peter means rock, a reference to his rock-like faith. In Bible times, when you called a person's name, you weren't just identifying them, you were identifying their character. And so my question is, what pops up on your mental screen when you hear the name of God? What images does that bring to mind for you? The answer depends on who you are, how much you know, how much history you have with him. For most of us, the word God, you know, brings up images of the stories of the Bible. <coughs> how God created the world out of nothing. How he parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel and led them to freedom. How he caused the walls to come tumbling down at Jericho. How he enabled David's tiny stone to slay Goliath. How he shut the mouths of lions so Daniel could get a good night's sleep. And we know God through the things he has done because God's activities demonstrate his character. We hear the stories and then we refer back to the God who stands behind these stories. God's name is his character and his reputation. So let me give you a suggestion for your personal Bible study time. Study sometime how many times the name of God is mentioned in the Bible. And you'll discover that the Bible mentions the name of God hundreds and hundreds of times. Here's just a few examples from Psalms. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Psalm 20, some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 23, he guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Psalm 25, for the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive my many, many sins. How about this famous verse? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know that is found three different times in the Bible, in Joel, in Acts, and in Romans? 
So God's name represents who he is. It's not just a title. It is him. It is who he is. It embodies his character. And that's why the third commandment in Exodus 20 says you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That's not just, you know, a casual saying of God's name, but it means to not take it lightly who God is, what he represents. Don't be flippant about it. It's the exact opposite of hallowing God's name. Now, if we pull all that together, everything we've just talked about, if we kind of just now assimilate all of that, this is what hallowed be your name really means. It means something along the lines of, Lord, may your righteous character be seen in the world so that men and women will respect you for who you really are. May your name be made famous through us so that your creation will give you the honor and respect that you deserve. Obviously, that's a whole lot lengthier than may your name be kept holy. But that's what it means. That's the essence of what we're praying there. So what does God look like? The Bible doesn't leave us to wonder about the answer to that question. Nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, a little baby was born in Bethlehem who forever answered that question. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, listen to this. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. In other words, he carries God's name with him. Because God's character and attributes are reflected, they're radiated out from Jesus. Does God have a name? Yes, his name is Jesus. And in him, the abstract becomes something you can see and touch and experience. When I look at Jesus, all those theoretical ideas about God, they suddenly become reality to us. You know, when I see Jesus touch a leper in scripture, I know no one is too dirty for God. When I see him pause to speak to a beggar, I know he's never too busy for me. When I see him feed the multitudes with loaves and fishes, I know he can supply my needs. When I see him with the towel in the basin washing the feet of the disciples, I know that no job is beneath him and he has the heart of a servant. Finally, I see him hanging on the cross, beaten and bruised and bloodied and mocked and scourged and hated and rejected, crucified. When I hear him cry out, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I suddenly understand that Jesus truly loves us no matter what. In Jesus, I discover a God who takes people seriously. He loves his creation with an insistent and desperate love for his creation. He never treats people casually. He never brushes them off. He never says, you're a loser, I have no time for you. He's a God who cares enough to get involved in this ugly, twisted, and unredeemed world. That's who God is. And if he never took people lightly, then I must never take his name lightly. Now let me stop here and make one really simple observation. No prayer could be more appropriate in a sinful world then may your name be kept holy. Because if one thing is certain about the world we live in, God's name is not being hallowed today. 
A few years ago, a, a major news organization reported on a survey that compared the ethical behavior of American Christians with the ethical behavior of the general population. And the survey reportedly found that there is no substantial difference at all in the ethical behavior of those who call themselves Christians and the rest of America. Virtually indistinguishable. So what is the implication there? Christians are simply ignored because we look too much like everyone else. We have no witness. We have no impact. Because, you know, in the early church, the Christians were thrown to the lions. In too many cases today, we've joined in a limited partnership with the people who own the lions. We're just snuggling up to the world and we're getting cozy. And we have lost our ability to influence the culture, and the world around us. Here's why it's important. I truly believe that if Christians took the name of God more seriously, his character and his attributes, and carried that with us, the people who don't care about God yet would take us more seriously. I mean, what would we see if we followed you around this week? Would your life show any significant difference because you follow Jesus? Does the fact that you bear the name of Jesus Christ make a difference in the way you live? That's really the bottom line of this request. May your name be kept holy. When you pray that, you are really praying, God, help me live in such a way that your name is made great in my life. May your reputation be increased in the world by the way I live and carry your name with me. You know, somewhere I read the story of a soldier who is in the army and in the service of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military leaders the world has ever known. And this soldier had deserted his post in battle and he was brought before Alexander the Great. And when he was asked his name, the shaking soldier replied, my name is Alexander, my Lord. And at that revelation, Alexander the Great said, you have three choices, fight, get out of the army, or change your name. And we carry the name of the Lord with us. His reputation in the world rests on us. And as scary as that is, that is the biblical truth. We are his witnesses. We, are, we carry the light of the world. And we cannot hide from that responsibility. We honor that name and increase his reputation when we stand up for him. We keep his name holy when we live in a way that represents his character and his attributes. And if we're not going to get into the battle for God, then we ought to get out of the army or change our name. Now, please, I'm not recommending that you walk away from your relationship with Jesus and stop calling yourself a Christian. I'm saying you need to start acting like you're a part of uh who Jesus is in your life. When you pray, hallowed be your name, you are both the request and the answer. As the words leave our mouths, our lives become part of the answer to that prayer. When you pray that God's name be kept holy, your first obligation is to live in such a way that God has no trouble answering your prayer through you. If God's name is going to be kept holy, it's because we are living lives that are holy that are separated to God. 
And he, because here's the thing, God's name is holy. It is. It's our responsibility to keep it that way. God's name is holy. Nothing we do will ever change that. But it's our responsibility to keep it that way in this world. And I want to spend the remaining time we have this morning talking about what it looks like to live this kind of life. A life that is holy, dedicated to God, and ready to be used by him to make his name famous in the world. Holy means set apart, consecrated, set apart for God so he can use us, and set apart from the world so there is a distinction. We are to live differently. We need to act differently. We need to respond differently. Guys, people need to see Jesus in the way we live, act, and treat other people. That's the core of holiness. And if we are going to live holy, the first thing we need to do is get rid of the things that are obvious areas of sin. Things that are clearly not in alignment with his name. Okay, These kinds of things don't require a lot of thought. They just require an act of will. When they are obvious areas of sin that conflict with scripture very clearly, they go against the way that Jesus taught we should live, they go against the law, that when we see those types of things in our lives, it doesn't require a lot of thought. We don't have to pray about it. We just need to act. We need to make a decision. We all either have now or have had these no-brainer things that we need to get rid of. Things that are spelled out pretty clearly in God's word with regard to you know, the list of holy no-nos. Uh, things like uh, drug and alcohol addiction, chronic lying, adulterous relationships, stealing. These are all things that God clearly speaks against in the Bible. And if any of them or anything like them exist in your life, it's time to send them packing. Listen to what uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. In other words, get rid of it, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So there it is. When we have the new nature of Christ, we're going to reflect his nature, his character, his attributes, that is going to be flowing through us and out of us, and we are going to be truly righteous and holy in this world. Because you will never be victorious in your life following Jesus if you allow habitual sin to remain. If you allow those things to, to stick and stay and remain in your life and be a part of your life, you're never going to experience that victorious, overcoming Christian life that God has prescribed for his people to experience. Not only will they lose you battle after battle, but it will begin to infect other areas of your life. The time to deal with things like that is now, not to wait, don't delay, give it to God today and make the decision to move to the other side of those areas of sin. But there are other areas of our lives that aren't quite so obvious. Maybe they're, you know, those areas of uncertainty. I'm not sure, should I be doing this or should I not? They may not be commanded specifically in scripture. They may require more thought and work on our part to identify. But if we're going to live holy lives, if we're going to live in such a way that God's name is glorified and kept holy 
through our example to the world around us, it requires us to do that kind of work, to put in the work in prayer and to wrestle through that with the Holy Spirit and say, reveal those areas of my life that need to change. Um, and we've all got things in our lives that may not be as obvious as the areas of sin that I mentioned earlier, but still need to be eliminated. Things like uh, activities that take too much of our time and prevent us from going all in for God. Work hours that hurt our family. An opposite gender friendship that pushes the lines of appropriateness. Uh, holding on to what we have instead of being generous. Media content that doesn't fit the guidelines that God lays out for us in his word. And in case you're wondering what God's criteria is for us, uh, for what we should allow into our minds and into our hearts, here is the filter that God's word gives us in Philippians 4 verse 8. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. My challenge to you is put that filter over your media intake, over the places you go online, the jokes that you laugh at, the conversations that you take part in. Think of Philippians 4.8 as uh, the guardrails for holy living. And I understand that our nature when we hear something like that is to push back at this. But Pastor Jeff, that's legalism. No, legalism would be saying, you can't watch football on TV, that's sin. Well, it is sin if you're cheering for the eagles, but that's not in the Bible. Uh, no, we're not prescribing the decisions you should make based on our preference or our convictions. That's what legalism is. It's imposing my personal convictions on someone else. What I'm doing here today is presenting you with biblical guidelines that you can use to evaluate your own life and pray through with the Holy Spirit and, and help you honor God and help you keep his name holy as you carry that name with you. These are biblical principles that we all need to apply to our lives. Now, another pushback I hear is, well, it's such a small deal. It's hardly an issue. Let's talk about that. I've used this illustration uh, a while back, uh, but it's such a perfect illustration for this principle. When I was in high school, I, I participated, my main sport was baseball, but I also ran cross country and I've told stories about that and I'm not gonna talk about that today, but I also was on swim team. And swim team, another way of describing that in common language is organized torture. Um, it's designed to make you feel miserable. That's what swim team is for. Uh, we would practice twice a day before and after school. We'd have to arrive at the school at 5.45 in the morning uh, in the middle of winter, and this was Chicago, uh, which meant temperatures were around zero most of the time when I would get there. And we would swim miles every day. Our hair would turn to straw because of the chlorine. Almost every practice, someone would throw up uh, for, you know, from the workout. My coach used to have a saying, it's not a good practice unless someone throws up. He was a real bundle of joy. Uh, we would be too tired to stay awake in our classes. And this was the joy of being on swim team. I did it to get in shape for baseball. Some of the guys actually enjoyed swim team. I don't know what was wrong with them. But we would practice like this for the whole season. Every meet attempting to improve on our personal best times, uh, swim just a little bit faster in order to get ready for the conference meet and then the state meet at the end of the year. And we would put everything we had on the line. We'd kill ourselves in preparation for this race that would last a few minutes at the most for many of us, just a few seconds 
is how long that race was. And the night before the conference meet would take place, the team would gather together at the school and we would participate in the ritual affectionately known as the shave down. And the shave down is where all of these high school dudes would gather in the locker room with our can of shaving cream and our razors and we would shave our arms and our legs and our chests and then we'd say, hey, can you get my back for me and shave our backs? And we would shave all of these parts of our body um, and, we, and we would do that to get rid of all of the, that hair on your legs and your arms and all that. We spent the whole season preparing ourselves physically uh, the night before, we got rid of that last little bit that was standing in the way. We wanted nothing to stand in the way of us performing better than we ever had before in the pool. Now, why did we do this? It's not that much hair, okay? I mean, I'm a 14-year-old you know, high school kid. We weren't like grizzly bears, all right? Just to remove that much hair, did it really make that much of a difference in the water? Short answer... Nope, but when do I ever give short answers in my sermons, uh, you know, or ever? Uh, I'm not much for short answers. The point is it didn't matter how much of a difference it made. If it made any difference, you did it. I, I mean, you see, God wants more than just almost everything from us. He wants more than close. He's looking for total commitment from us. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about big things or small things. In fact, Jesus emphasized the small things. He said, you know, we, we need to get, he says, you know, don't go to your neighbor and try to remove the speck of dust from their eye when you got a beam, a plank in your own eye. So there are those planks, but there's also those specks of dust. And sometimes those specks of dust can be just as irritating. And we need to remove them as well. And so the point was on swim team, if it makes a difference, why wouldn't you do it? And the same principle applies in our faith story. If it makes a difference and, and helps our witness and makes us better able to carry the message of God's love to a world that is broken around us and helps us to live for him with purity and with holiness better, why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we get rid of it? Total commitment to being the best that we could be. That's what it's going to take on our part to live the life of faith and holiness that God has planned for you. It takes a decision. As I said earlier, an act of will. It may not have been a huge difference, but if it held us back, why keep it? One one hundredth of a second could mean the difference between first and second or third place. Just one one hundredth of a second. And there are times where the shave down would help us in, you know, a tenth or a couple tenths of a second. It made a difference. Why hold on to something that is holding you back? We need to get rid of the little things in our lives. Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now it says not even a hint not a hint, not a big amount. A hint is not this huge boulder in our lives. A hint is small, but by nature, it doesn't stay that way, does it? What is a hint? A hint is a small thing that leads to something bigger. You know, we give somebody a hint 
It's, it's to cause them to discover something beyond that. And that's what hints of sin do. It causes us to discover something beyond that. Now, with that definition in mind, think about the language of Scripture there. A hint of sin. You may have little struggles. You may have little things you're holding on to and not ready to let go of. But hints of sin lead to bigger things. We need to get rid of the hints in our lives. Several, several biblical authors compare our spiritual story to a race. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Now, some of you have made this decision to serve God and you're dragging all of this garbage, baggage from your past that you say is too difficult to give up. And when you really think about it, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's more difficult to hold on to it because you're trying to live for Jesus. You're trying to run this race. You're trying to be a witness. You're trying to represent God's name well in this world. And you're trying to do it while you're dragging all this trash along with you. It's time. It's time to get rid of it. Don't let it slow you down anymore because some of you are like swimming in a race with a parachute tied to your back. Getting rid of the small sins, the hints will help you to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. But unfortunately, the opposite can be true as well. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Verse 19 says they have lost all sensitivity. That is such a scary verse because what it describes is somebody who has consistently ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit to change or to let go of these problematic areas in their lives and they have continually just satisfied their sinful nature and they have become numb to the voice of God. They have hardened their hearts towards God. Don't ever let yourself get to that place where you don't feel convicted about sin anymore and you feel numb to the voice of God warning you. And if you ignore it long enough, you could end up there. Getting rid of the little sins, uh, quote unquote, will help us to be more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I want to share a story illustrating this point as we get ready to close in prayer and then we're going to have a time of worship uh, with our worship team there at the Giddens house. But there was a man in a third world country uh, who wanted to sell his house, not a big house, obviously, but to sell his house for $3,000. And there was a poor man who was looking to, to get his first home and he offered $1,000. It was all he had. And they bargained back and forth for a long time. And the, finally, the man who was selling agreed to sell the house on one condition. And he would sell the house to the man for the $1,000. But in the contract, he was written that he would keep ownership of one small nail that was over the front door of the house. A big long nail that was pounded into the house uh, right over the front door. He would keep ownership of that and the man who bought the house wouldn't be allowed to remove it or touch it uh, because it was his and the man agreed. So the old owner went back to him, uh, you know, six months later, the original owner went back and said he wanted to buy the house back for the thousand dollars because he, he wanted it back. He had fallen on hard times. He wanted the house back. And the new owner demanded five times as much. He says, okay, you can have your house back for $5,000. And the original owner wasn't going to hear it. And uh, so he went out 
and he got a dead animal and he hung it on the nail over the door. And it wasn't allowed to be removed because he didn't have owner, the, the new owner didn't have ownership of that nail. And so he hung this dead animal on it. And after a period of time, the house became unlivable because this rotted and decayed and the maggots came and everything that goes along with rotting flesh. And it was there and it became, the house became unlivable and he was forced to sell it back to the original owner for the, the original price. So here's the point of this story. If you make a commitment to God and you leave the devil even one small nail, one tiny hook, he will come back and hang his rotting garbage in your life again. And he will make your house unfit for Jesus to live there. Guys, don't give the devil anything to come back to. Don't hang on to those hints of sin in our lives. That's going to lead to something more. And some of you may be wondering, how do I know where to draw the line? What should I do? What should I not do? How do I know where right that line of right and wrong is? And it can be tough to know, can it? The Bible clearly spells out some things for us. And the Holy Spirit will speak to us and help us to make wise decisions. But a long, long time ago, in my early days of youth ministry, I adopted a motto for myself that has served me well, and I want to share it with you. And that motto is this, stay away from the gray. Stay away from the gray. You know, there are obvious areas of sin and then there are obvious areas of holy living, of righteousness, but then there's this whole area of gray in the middle that's kind of close to that line, right? Of where sin is and where, you know, living for God is. And so many followers of Jesus spend so much of their time trying to get as close to that line as they can get. What they're saying is, how close can I get to sin without sinning? And that is completely the opposite mindset of what scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us how close to God can I get? How far away from sin can I run? How close to God and how closely can I demonstrate his character in my life? And that is not tiptoeing that line saying how close can I get to sin without sinning. What it comes down to is this, stay away from the gray. If you're not sure, why do it? It's not going to help you grow closer to Jesus and it potentially could bring harm to your faith story or to someone else who is watching your example. So when those circumstances come up, it's not black or white, but it's gray. One way to ensure that you're not leaving that hook over your door is to stay away from the gray. I know this is not a popular message. I know it's not a feel-good sermon, uh, it's harder here and it's even harder to live out. But I believe God has called us to more. He has called us to carry his name to a world that needs to hear it. He has called us to make and keep his name holy in this world. And the only way we're going to do that is by living the kind of lives that he's called us to live. Live a life of holiness, separation from the world, and dedication to God. God's name and God's reputation matter to him, so much so that Jesus inserted it right up front in his model prayer for us. It needs to matter to us as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this challenge in the Lord's Prayer. This challenge, Jesus, that you gave us that we would pray, may your name be kept holy. 
And God, that's on us. Help us to live that out. Help us to live lives that are separated from the world, that we've put a distance between us and how everyone else lives, that people would look at us and notice something different. They would look at us and notice a life that is lived differently than how everyone else is. God, forgive us for living lives that are indistinguishable from the rest of the world around us. And God, I pray that you would help us to live in such a way that the character of Christ is evident in us. Let others see that. Let us be uh, the, the answer to our own prayer as we pray, may your name be kept holy. God, I pray that we would be able to go out into this world and live lives before everyone else around us that would cause them to stand up and take notice and be drawn towards the character of Christ. They would be drawn to the name of Jesus. God, let us make a difference and let your name be made famous in this world through us. God, let that be true of Trilogy as it's true of us as individuals. Let it become true of our church that people would notice a difference in Trilogy. That we're not just going with the flow. We're, just, we're not trying to, you know, just not make waves. But God, we want to make waves. We want to make a difference in this world around us and help us to do exactly that. God, would you help us to do that? Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, guide and direct us. Give us the wisdom as we make decisions, as we evaluate personal choices. God, help us to make those choices that are going to reflect you. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.